have a Bible, I would invite you to please turn to the New Testament book of Romans, page 797 in the Church Bibles, Romans chapter 3, and in just a second or two we're going to begin reading actually in verse 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and we're going to continue in our studies in Romans here over the next little while. Okay, let's hear God's word. This is verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. Remember, this was Paul's like, this is a diatribe. There's some mythical person that Paul's talking to through beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and he's almost through. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious or aware of sin. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to, the, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes, this righteousness, excuse me, from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Got a little excited there. It's a good verse, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, let's pray. Father, your kindness to us in Christ is overwhelming. We, We can't sing enough about your holiness and your goodness to us. That in Christ alone, your justice is satisfied and you cover us in his righteousness. So every bitter thought we have or will ever entertain, every evil deed we have done and still do, every harsh, unkind word we have spoken or thought and will speak or think in the future, all of it, Father, is replaced with the specific goodness and obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to say what Micah said, who is like you, O God? In light of this, we want to thank you for the grace of substitutionary atonement. And, and God, you are good. Your compassion, it melts our hearts with affection and admiration as you let everything, everything sinful about us, us who belong to you, be buried in your mercy, which is undeserved. But right now, God, it is deeply treasured. And Father, when the evil one or others, our own flesh, would would tell us this can't be true, your sin is too great, you sin too often, It's the same sin over and over again, or your sin is so small. What's the big deal? Father, keep us in the truth of the gospel that blood was shed for our sin. 
And please now keep us in the truth of these verses before us. And please help me, help us. May some beautiful graces be given this morning to the praise of your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen. I believe that the word of God is inspired and inerrant, meaning no errors at all. I believe that the word of God is authoritative, sufficient, and clear when it's kept in context. And because it is all those things, the primary way I advocate advocate this and support this as a pastor, uh, beyond confessing this as a member of, of this church, is in the consistent explanation of God's word week after week, Sunday after Sunday, so that God's voice gets the loudest say in his people's lives and in his church. Now, that's awfully important. God's voice from God's word gets the loudest say in his people's lives and in his church, and then we learn the gospel verse by verse each Sunday, which means a lot of things, but it especially means the word of God is never to be a springboard to what we really want to say. As if to say, we reference a part of the Word of God, but that's only a springboard to what you want to say or what I really want to say to myself or to others, which is misguided at best, evil at worst, because God knows best what His people need. Therefore, I am a servant of the Word. I stand below the Word. I do not stand above it, which is always important. Indeed, as you think about what we've read this morning It may not seem like it's that big of a deal to hear once again, because some of us have moved in church circles forever, okay, we're sinners. Been hearing that for years. Jesus died, sins forgiven, let's get on with it. Can we? Can we move past this, please? However, when you pay attention to the Bible, we find that the God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, self-existing, who is love in his almightiness, which is over everything and everyone, he thinks differently. In other words, for loving reasons, because that's how God moves, he won't let this sin thing go. Because the Bible, as we often say it, and it bears repeating, it's, it's not so much a book of little disconnected stories, each with a moral, each with a tip, or some kind of strategy for life. The Bible is actually a single story about what's wrong with the human race, sin, what God has done to make it right in Jesus Christ, and finally how history then as a result is going to turn out in the end. All of that is a storyline of the Bible, which is why Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his instruction is so fundamental and so essential to the Bible. Because the Bible says everything, everything depends on him. And to be honest, as time goes on for me, this makes incredible sense and offers me incredible clarity, which I desperately need. So at the close of this past year, I tried to do a lot of reading, and I read two articles. One was the online publication, The Spectator, the other an op-ed piece from the New York Times, and they both made a great case why this past decade that we had just left has been the best decade in human history. This is what they said. We are living through the greatest improvement in human living standards in history. Extreme poverty has fallen below 10% of the world's population for the first time. The author says it was 60% when I was born, and he was born in 1958. Africa has experienced faster economic growth than Europe or North America. 
Child mortality rates have fallen to record lows. Famine virtually extinct. Malaria, polio, heart disease, all on the decline. Indeed, sugar has taken more lives than bullets. Our ecological footprint is shrinking. We use less and we're becoming more sustainable. And then he quotes a scientist from, from MIT, Mike McAfee, who says, we now use less metal, less water, less land overall versus the previous decade. Mobile phones have the computing power of a room-sized computer of the 1970s. And this is cute. He says, I use mine instead of a camera, radio, torch, compass, map, calendar, watch, CD player, newspaper, and pack of cars. <laughs> it's true. Cancer death rates, largest drop in a decade in human history. Teenage pregnancy in the United States is at record low. Illicit drug use in students down 22.6%. Also, high school seniors saw the lowest level, level of alcohol use and drunkenness ever recorded. Abortions are down. Violent crimes, stunningly low rates. The New York Times op-ed piece was titled... Christian doomsayers have lost it. Now, don't be too hard on them. This is what they said. They, Christians, seem to have some kind of psychological craving for apocalyptic fear. I wonder if walking it back is even possible. What he was saying was things are getting better. So can we just relax a bit? Now, let's not miss the fact that all that I said to you is, is on some level good news. And good news doesn't often make the news. doesn't even make a sermon sometimes. Indeed, when I told a friend about this article which said this past decade was the best decade in human history, they looked at me like, what? You know, for real? You know, come on. <laughs> because most of the popular news agencies, they give a lot of bad news. I mean, let's just be honest. But the data is there. And we should care about the world because Jesus cares about the world. He created the world, and when he made it, Genesis 2-7, this is the Bible, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Meaning when God blows into Adam's nostrils, God is in the human. This is what some theologians call that divine spark. The breath of God is now in every human being, in every person, everywhere, in that is beautiful. They matter. And if you think about that, that is beautiful. I mean, isn't it beautiful that less humans are suffering and living better than any time in history? I think that's better. And isn't it beautiful, loved ones, as you think about yourself and you think about others and you think about people that you know and you don't know that because we're all made in the image of God, isn't it beautiful that you are beautiful? I think that's beautiful. Even when I look at the mirror and the argument's there, you're not beautiful. It's like, well, no, God says it in Genesis 2-7. So when we read articles and think about our world as it is compared to other times, we should be grateful. Holy cow, why wouldn't we be grateful? None of what I read to you was bad news. I mean, except maybe the line about, you know, some Christians and I didn't take it personally. Maybe, maybe you do, but I hope you don't. So we should be very grateful. However, we should also be careful. We should be theological. And we should let the Bible sit over the newspapers and over the data and over everything because by nature, humanity's view of what is good is far less than what is God's view of what is good. Our understanding, even as Christians, of, of the depth of sin is not like God's. 
And since humanity is so short-sighted and we deal with self-interest on a daily basis, a self-interest which tends to lower our standards about what is good and, and what is bad, we kind of forget that we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. And because we don't think deeply about the loss of life, the hurt on humanity, the psychological and the, and the physiological weight of it all, so we justifiably might lose sleep over a personal problem. That's understandable. But I bet it's rare that we lose sleep over people's problems or people we do not even know problems. So they're like numbers on a data sheet, 50%, 20%. Yay! Yeah, but what about that 20%? People who are made in the image of God. Remember Ezekiel 33, 11? This is God, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So the data in some way are like dark spots on humanity's sin ledger, which God's whole. So people might be thinking, cool, you know, if this keeps going in about 50 years, we may have all our problems lick. But refuse to look back and see all those dead bodies and all that rebellion, which at its root was a refusal to acknowledge God as God, to acknowledge this is God's world, not ours, and these people that got the hurt on them, all those terrible things that happened to them, those were people made in the image of God. And they mattered. And I got to live in God's world, God's way. But of course, the big question is, do we? I mean, you might be a Christian and you might have like 10 accountability partners. Great. But do you think that they are all able to see your sin as God sees them? The human heart, the motive beyond the external don't kid yourself. But then there's the gospel. And no wonder Paul says, and I hope your Bible's open, verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he be? Because by Paul's own admission, he would write, remember, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, perhaps the only way a person could actually say this and, and believe it, I am the worst of all sinners. Consequently, to Paul, this gospel is awesome. And he needs the gospel to be true because the gospel reveals the way in which God makes men and women who are in the wrong, not capable of, of removing themselves from that arrangement to be in the right without jeopardizing God's own righteousness. So if you think about the gospel, it is different. It is different. And if you think what it means to become a Christian is only there are certain things I have to stop doing and certain things I have to start doing, then God will bless me. Then I'll be okay. And, you know, maybe if I'm really, really zealous, God will bless me even more, and then I'll really be okay. If you think that, you are wrong. That is the law. That is not the gospel. That is works. That is not grace. So the gospel's not on the human radar. It's not really on your mental map. Whatever it is, you cannot categorize the gospel. And I want you to recognize this so desperately this morning. And never wander away from this. This is unique. It's different. It's not what you expect. There is not one speck of religion on the gospel. Indeed, historians tell us that one of the reasons why the early church just took off and grew so swiftly is the uniqueness of its redemptive message in the ancient world. Listen to what it means. 
that in Christianity, God himself was the sacrifice. And they didn't have to bring one, and they didn't have to be one. Not for redemption, not for salvation. And apparently God is so good and so gracious that when you open your Bible, pay attention to it, he keeps telling us over and over again, hey, you are forgiven. Hey, I am your father. Hey, Jesus is your righteousness. Hey, the righteous people live by faith. Hey, Hebrews 4, you just come and enter into my rest. And the old covenant, the the if you, then I will thing, that's over. I have for you in Christ. And this is what that means. And I'll read you the scripture. But before I read you the scripture, I'll give you the line. Promises, yes, amen, in Christ, enjoy. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. No wonder Paul says we preach Christ. We, we present him. That is good news. Promises, yes. In Christ, yes. God's glory, yes. And that all begins with honesty. Verse 9, if your Bible is open, this is our first point, the equality of sin. This is what Paul tells us. In sin, there's no class of people where sin is not a problem. It cuts through every economic and social and intellectual line. And you, because there's always people, if I had a little bit more money, if I was in a different place, I was a little bit smarter, then I would not sin. Bible's like, no. Sin is an equal opportunity thing. <laughs> Which on one level means what is done in back alleys is done or thought of in nice homes. Princeton, the Citadel, Congress Avenue, which is a bad place people would do bad things in Austin, Texas. They're all the same. But it actually goes far deeper than that. So Paul, under inspiration, writes, you see it there in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Are we any better? For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. In the Greek it reads like this. None there is righteous, innocent, or correct. They're all acceptable translations. And, and when it's written in the Greek, it's written in the emphatic. And that's important. Let me just tell you this and bear with me. So it's implying divine authority. And so in the Greek language, when you want to stress something as this is really, really important, you write it in the emphatic. So there's a continuity to this. There's a permanence to this. It's a fixed part of human nature. And it's almost written like an oracle from God. So it's written like an oracle so that this is a divine word which is massively important and because you're human, it needs to be like felt, oracle, thus saith the Lord. That's why I tell you those things. And that's why Paul says, what's the point of further testimony? Now, loved ones, this is true. And it has to permeate our thinking as Christians which means everything which makes you and I, you and I, we got to tie ourselves to this. You and me, you as you, me as me, we are not righteous. We are unrighteous. Therefore, the righteousness a Christian has is not from them by works, but a gift to them because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's righteousness. And to misunderstand this or to misapply this or just, you know, to ignore it, put it off in a corner, not, let it, let, not letting it be fundamental to us. If you read your Bible, that is tied to almost every problem that Paul addresses in his letters to all the churches. Because as soon as those churches forget this, they abandon the roots of the gospel and they replace it with superstition, religious disciplines, religious practices, works-based conclusions, which swings the door wide open for judgmentalism and division and false teaching and some kind of like religious hierarchy in the church. You know, here we go. We're doing it again. And there they are. They're not doing it again. And people say, okay, the way to God may begin with Christ, but the way to improve it Begins with your works. Not so. Not so. So like, you might be in here today and you're like, amen, grace, amen, grace. Out there when life comes. Right? And you have to give grace because you've been given grace. That's hard. Now, if your Bible's open, you'll see in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, what Paul did is he exposed the unrighteousness of the non-Jewish world. That's pretty easy, right? You look at the world, creepy place. He's exposed the hypocrisy and the judgmentalism of the religious moralizer a little bit harder. These people were so confident of their own righteousness, they like to look down on everybody else. So they judge them. That's chapter 2 there, verse 1 and 2 and 3, all the way to 16. Then he exposed the confident, self-righteous Jewish people. That begins in verse 17 of chapter 2. And so they thought and boasted in their relationship with God and his law. And they even thought, you know what? We are so good that we can teach people into righteousness. We can teach people how to be righteous through their own obedience. It still happens. Consequently, what Paul charges is that the entire human race, religious, Jewish, Gentile, whoever, guilty. And he explains it from creation. He's such an intellectual... Creation, history, reason, logic from conscience, and now he's going to explain it from the Jewish Bible. Masterfully presenting his case, the equality of sin in the entire human race. Pointing out sin is not only done, you know, by a specific class of people or caused by a specific location. So if you get out of location, things will be better or some kind of context which you were brought into or only, you know, a certain kind of people with a certain kind of background. They're the ones that need Jesus. Verse 23, no, do you see it there? All have sin. Verse 10, no one righteous. Now, translators differ about who the we Paul is writing of in verse 9. You see it there, are we any better? So is the we Paul and the Jews? Or is the we Paul and the Christians? It sounds like a music group. <laughs> Paul and the Jews, Paul and the Christians. I'm not going to settle the matter because in one sense it doesn't matter because Paul identifies himself with both of these groups. Paul is Jewish, yes, and Paul is Christian. So both Jews and Christians need to be or have been saved by faith in Christ, just like Paul. Therefore, the righteousness needed is a righteousness which is given. It's not produced. And that is clear because of verse 10, that oracle from God, no one is righteous. So when Paul says at the end of verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin, he, mean, he means sin is the most negative and deadly force in, in the entire human experience. And verse 19, do you see it there? So much so, the whole world is held accountable to God. And the word accountable means liable. It's a judicial word. It's a word in the courtroom. 
It means liable for punishment. And this means no matter who you are, no matter what your record, no matter whether you have lived a life of sacrifice and compassion and a life of service or a life of cruelty and exploitation, God says we're all alike. We're all condemned. We're all lost. We, we all deserve to be rejected by God. Subsequently, we all need Jesus. We need his righteousness. That's what he's saying. Now, you're going to have to ask yourself the question, if you're really thinking, how can that be? I mean, I read this, and I think of my grandmother and my father. <laughs> you're like, 1%, God? Isn't any, somebody 1% acceptable? Well, just think with me. Remind yourself what we learned in chapters 2 and 1. Paul is saying, and if you zip that up, a criminal robbing and a murdering people, uh, someone all hiked up on sex or a gossiping tongue and a moral religious person, an upright Pharisee who thinks because of his good deeds and his righteousness, God owes him blessing and people owe him respect. Paul's like, they're not any different. As different as those people look on the outside, The God who sees on the inside, he sees in all of them some kind of expression of a radical self-centeredness, a radical self-absorption, a radical sense of I am my own king or I am my own savior. And that is sin. And if you think about it, the latter can happen in church all the time. Trying to establish your own light of righteousness and not submitting to God's righteousness, a la Romans 10, 3. So, you know, we have kind of like a regional righteousness. And if you're doing the regional righteousness list, then man, you are on. And if you're not doing the regional righteous list, then there's, is there a problem between you and God? I don't know, cookies and cards and meetups and, and <laughs> prayer service. I mean, if you gave me a Coke and a smile, I can talk you into coming to a prayer service. I can talk you into why you should come to a prayer service. But I promise you, I will not judge you because you do not come to a prayer service. I promise you that. So when Paul says, all alike, are they any better than us? Not at all. That is a radical equality. And you need to think through the implications of that because many people come to Christianity saying, or Christians stray from Christianity and they think it or they say it, okay, somehow there's some, some things I must do for God. And if I do it, then God will be obliged to do this for me, uh, self-improvement. That's how spirituality works, so they say. But remember when Jesus was walking and the Jews of his day said to him, either by implication or just flat out in John 9, if somebody was poor, someone had a physical defect in their family, or something bad happened, they say, okay, obviously, they're doing something wrong. Who sinned? Who sinned? You, me, someone in your family, because, because sin caused all that badness. And of course, people looking on the outside will do the same thing. Somebody's sinning. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. What did you do? And every time Jesus would reply something like, who hasn't sinned? Who isn't sinning? And, and isn't the, the former how re- human relationships work? You keep performing. You, you keep doing and I'll keep liking and I'll keep approving. But if you don't. And you know, I grew up in the age where it was the whole God won't bless your life and God won't bless your church and God won't bless all your enterprises if you don't do X, Y, and Z. 
So if your church isn't blessed and your life isn't blessed, whatever that means, and your enterprises aren't blessed, then obviously someone's sinning. I do this for God and God will do that for me. If that's the model in your head, get it out fast. Get it out fast. Last Sunday, I got a text from a good friend who I desperately love. And they had a question about fasting. They were in a context where their preaching was about fasting. And essentially, what they learned was you need to fast to get something from God. Let me just ask you some quick questions. Is that worship, which is at the core of fasting? And isn't that kind of like paganism? You know, in paganism, you give the sacrifice... And God's obliged. He's got to do what you needed him to do because you gave him the sacrifice. But I was thinking by nature, sometimes we kind of assume that model. I mean, let's be honest. Please, please bear with me. When I was driving in the winter of November, just like a baby crying behind the wheel, I promise you when it was like snowing and I was going the record speed of 30 miles an hour in a 60 mile per hour, you know, lane, I promise you I had the thought, what did I do wrong to deserve this? And then I looked at Nicole, I'm like, oh. What did she do wrong? <laughs> now, that's the first time she's heard that. And it might be the last time I ever preach again. <laughs> but, but that was true. It just went in and it went out quick as a link. Because <laughs> I had to keep my eyes on the road and not on the coal. <laughs> so there's some kind of life that is considered a good life. And I've got to do something to implement it. And that there's a kind of life that's a bad life. And I have to discard it. Then if I adopt a good life and reject and abandon the bad life, then hey, 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 God will be obliged to do this and that. Therefore, I'm going to try to find out what it is a good life. That's what church is for. What's a good life? What do I have to stop doing? What do I have to start doing to get God to get going for me? And I suspect none of us are untouched by those kinds of moments. I would be shocked if that wasn't the case. But again, I want you to see that is, that's terrible. And if that was true, then God must have hated the Apostle Paul and must have hated all the disciples because they all had bitter lives at the end. So whatever Paul is talking about when he calls people to become a Christian and receive salvation, whatever Jesus is calling us to do when he calls us to take salvation, it can't be calling us to simply, okay, stop bad living, start good living because Paul and Jesus made a ministry out of saying that people who live good are no better than people who live bad. They're all spiritually lost, Before the eyes of God, they're in the very same place because God sees best. So again, if you think that what it means to become a Christian is only, this is is the thing, start doing good things and stop doing bad things and then God will save me and bless me, then then you're wrong. Okay, so what is it then? Well, what I want you to see is there's no other worldview, there's no other religion, no other philosophy that says anything like what we've read and what you're hearing. The fact is that whatever Jesus and Paul are calling us to in order to get salvation is nothing like you could, you could come up with on your own. It's not on your intellectual map. I mean, think about it. Every other religion is rooted in man. The gospel comes from outside the culture and plunges itself in the culture because we can't think this stuff up. So it's unique. It's different. It's outside the pale. And it doesn't fit into any human category. So when Paul and Jesus and when I call a person to become a Christian, I'm not saying, again, stop living like this and start living like that. That is the, that's part of repentance. A changed life is important. But it can't be the main thing. It's more the effect or the benefit of the gospel. A changed life is, but it's not the gospel. Why? 
Because we've learned that people who live good lives and people who live bad lives are all alike, according to God. Outside the grace of God, in Christ, in the gospel. Now, other implications come. So let's just say that you have embraced Christianity. You say, I'm a Christian. Do you, do you think through it? The, the far-reaching implications of verse 9. Are we any better? Not at all. And I want you to think about the person who wrote it. Because the person who wrote it, there's probably no one more devoted and more upright and more moral and dedicated to God and to his son and to the scriptures than the Apostle Paul. And the Paul who just wrote, are we any better, not at all, is an apostle. He's a bit past middle age. And he's spilling blood for the gospel, isn't he? His life is on the line for this gospel. And he's saying we, which includes he, we're not any better than anyone else. So he's laying on the line for Jesus, taking a beat down for Jesus, and he's like, you know what? But at the end of the day, I'm not any better than anybody else. I mean, that's striking. And if you read all of Romans, what you're going to find is that Paul grows, and especially in the early chapters, he goes through that, pra- that, that list, of that terrible list of sins, you know, sexual practices and, and all kinds of corruption in chapter 1. And then he gets to chapter 3 and says, am I any better than them? I mean, put yourself in that context, privately at home. Am I any better than them? Not at all. For Paul to say, I have come to the conclusion that through the gospel, that the criminal who's killing people and robbing people and raping people in the street is equal to me. I am no better than that person. I mean, that is almost unbelievable. I mean, that takes a divine act to believe, I think. And we need to think this out. Paul was a Pharisee, and as a Pharisee, he had his hate group, right? He hated the Gentiles, spiritual dogs, unclean. That was the the words they would use about them. That would be the equivalent of drug pushers and alcoholics and deadbeat dads and snooty neighbors or, you know, stuck-up people, pot-smoking people. And like, here he is now. He's going to dedicate his life to live for Jesus, which means to live with them and to live for them, just like Jesus, by getting the gospel to them. That is different. And so it wasn't possible for Paul, as a religious guy, to do that until he met Jesus. Read the book of Acts. Paul was great at hating people before he became a Christian. I don't think this is wrong. Sometimes we Christians are great at hating people as Christians. But now, a great group of people, the entire human race, that he used to look down on, that he would put down, that he would write off. He would have no love for them, no respect for them. wouldn't give them anything. They'd have to earn it. But because of the gospel, the doctrine of sin, he shows them love and he shows them respect and he says, yes, I am my brother and I am my sister's keeper. Listen to this quote. No part of us is untouched by sin. And therefore, no action of ours is as good as it should be. Therefore, unless God's grace in Jesus saves us, we are lost. Paul was found. And when he was found, he rehumanized himself. The people in the past, he used to be really good at looking down on, sure, I mean, call them out, that's easy. The people he would say, get away from me. You're the reason why things are so terrible in the world. But now, he says, 
as a Christian, I am no better than them. That is to rehumanize yourself and others radically in your mind. Christians, let this be true of us. Let it just drenched, be drenched in your life. The world is not filled with good people and bad people as God understands good and bad, but simply lost people, people who are unrighteous, who need salvation, and God in his great love keeps perpetually offering people that salvation. So the gospel will not make us look down on people, not at all. Look what happened to Paul. Look at, listen to Jesus on the cross. Uh, Stephen to the murdering crowds. What did they say? God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I was thinking about John 3.16 and one of the reasons why I think John 3.16 is so popular for God so loved the world, you know, filled with rebels that he gave. He didn't marginalize himself from the world. He wasn't, you know, snooty and uppity. He wasn't strutting his righteousness in the way that we would be tempted to do. He wasn't around looking down on everyone else, but he gave his son to die for his enemies, which I used to be before he rescued me. So that believing and not behaving is the key. So if we skip verse 9 and 10, if we don't take time like we're taking this morning to meditate on the realities, to pray for grace, to believe it, and to internalize it, then I promise you this at least will happen. In your spiritual bloodstream, if, if you don't believe verses 9 and 10 to the extent which I'm trying to say it, then you'll have a patronizing life, you'll have a condescending life, you'll have a cynical life, you'll have a belittling life, you'll have a life which turns inward, you'll be so great at judging others, your good works will be carefully orchestrated, you know, for the applause, joy will be conditional, judgmentalism will be continual, and your witness will be irrational. Because Jesus dies for his enemies. Jesus emptied himself for you. Why? Because you, like the whole human race, are in a predicament of unrighteousness with all the terrible things that happen to people when they don't cry out to Jesus. The righteousness of God, chapter 1, 16, 17, 18, chapter 3, 22, 23, is given by faith because the righteous live by faith. And, and listen carefully. The righteousness of God, the gospel, is stronger than any personal call for holiness. And I say that because so often we hear that all the time. Be better, do better, get better. What's wrong with you? Okay, I hear you, but do you hear God? You cannot have holiness without grace, without faith in Christ. And that's a gift. That's a gift. Because without the grace of God in Jesus, holiness is an impossibility. Acceptable holiness is an impossibility. That's the equality of sin, and, and very briefly, the path of sin. So people are like, ah, oh, this is a little bit over the top. You know, you're comparing my grandmother to Adolf Hitler. What's wrong with you? And, and it does seem like there's an awful lot of people searching for God and seeking to please God. And then Paul says, no, wait a minute. What are you, what, you, know, what are you talking about? But when you look at the text carefully, and we're going to do this the remainder of our time and, and most of our time next Sunday. What Paul is showing us is that sin is relational before it ever becomes behavioral. So in other words, it's in the heart before it becomes 
in the life. Look at the phrase, verse 12. Turn away. All have turned away. Verse 11, seek. There is no one who seeks God. Those are directional words. Paul is talking about a path. He's talking about a direction, your aim. So, so sin is not so much a matter of whether you're doing bad things or whether you're doing good things. Sin is mainly a matter of why you are doing the doing that you are doing. That's the internal motives. And so when God takes that truth and applies it to his life, he's, or our life, excuse me, he says, verse 10, hey, Hey, there's no one righteous. Sin makes us want to hide from God, to get out from others' hand, run away from his control. When we sin, what we say, and we want to be our own savior, we want to be our own king. You want to keep God at arm's length. You want to stay in control of your life. That's what sin makes us do. It's a power. And we've said this many times, and we have to say it again. There are two ways to be your own savior. And Lord. One is to be your own law. You just make up your own rules. Live any way you want. The other is being very, very good. This is the gospel. Do everything you possibly can and just, you know, try your best to be like Jesus so that God has to bless you. So God has to save you. In which case, you're trying to get some kind of control over God, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. So you're not seeking God. You're just seeking things from God for yourself. Because if you look at the text, and this is where we're going to end, It doesn't say no one seeks blessing from God. Of course we do. No one seeks answers to prayer from God. Of course we do. No one seeks forgiveness from God. Of course we do. No one seeks spiritual advancement. Of course we do. But no, Paul says no one seeks God. God as God. So all our so-called serving and all our so-called doing good is really for ourselves. And because it's for ourselves, it's away from God. It's away from others. It's toward self-centeredness. That's the path of sin. It, at its root, it's just simply pride. And you and I can't get out of it. But Jesus can get us out of it. He can, he can sub himself in so that when we do, quote, good, it's all on him. No boasting. No pride. No, I did it again. I don't know why everyone else can't. Because, and this is where we'll end. There, see it there, verse 10? There is no one righteous. And I can't believe I'm going to say this to you. Since there is no one righteous, we need to act like it. We need to act like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ has paid the full price of all our sins. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for not fearing death, not fearing people, rather loving people and submitting to death. Father, please, because of this, give us as a people a vibrant and stable faith, ever increasing, which quiets the mind. puts away any of our ungratefulness and gives us real rest. Real rest. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll be